My assignment today is to preach on Christmas. I need to tell you I am uniquely qualified to do this because I am a Christmas freak. I love it. And for most of the 30 plus years that I pastored, I always had a Christmas in July or Christmas in August service. So welcome to my world. I absolutely love this assignment. My text today comes from one of those passages we frequently read at Christmas time. It is the Gospel of Luke, and it is the first chapter. That was a cue that you should take your Bibles out and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. Surely you brought your Bibles with you. If you didn't, why didn't you bring them? Just, just asking a question. We'll actually use them as we should. Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 26, the gospel writer records this. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel greeted her, went to her, and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly, greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, oh, do, not, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great, will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. <laughs> How, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am, you know, a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing, nothing is impossible with God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, how did Mary get pregnant? There were a lot of theories that were circulated at the time, and to be real honest, a lot of theories that get circulated at this time. So how did Mary actually get pre pregnant? How did it actually happen, though? Uh, the most common answer at the time certainly was that Joseph got her pregnant. I mean, that would be the obvious answer, wouldn't it? To most people, if Mary says, I got pregnant, they would turn and look at Joseph. Seems reasonable. 
The problem is that's a very 21st century answer, not a first century answer. See, in Jewish society at the time, all marriages were arranged marriages. There was no such thing as dating and courtship. It's common, probable, that Mary and Joseph had never met. Their arrangement to be married was a business transaction between two families, and there was no dating process. They didn't have a chance to get to know one another. They were most likely strangers to one another. Maybe they saw each other across the way, but they would not have really spent any time together. So the idea that Joseph would be the father, that he's the one that got her pregnant, is more a 21st century answer that we think a couple of teenagers got hot and heavy in the back seat. The reality is that they probably had no social contact and no physical contact at all. I'm not even sure at this point that they'd ever truly been introduced to one another. So that seems unlikely. Not that it couldn't have happened, not that it didn't happen in the first century. I mean, people are people, sin is sin. We haven't invented anything new today. It's been going on for all time. So uh, it could have happened. But the problem is Joseph's denial and his actions following the denial really seem to paint a picture that he's not the father. I mean, in the first century, if Mary announces that she's pregnant, she's the one in trouble. They would not necessarily assume that Joseph was the person who did it. Again, that's a 21st century answer. They wouldn't have assumed he was the one. They would have assumed that she was a wanton woman, that she had slept around, that she had given herself over to someone else. Because again, they would assume that she and Joseph really didn't know each other. So in the 21st century, she was a cause of public disgrace. She was be shamed. As a matter of fact, she could be punished by being stoned to death for her crime of sexual impropriety. But instead, Joseph shows some character, particularly if he is indeed a young man, a teenager, at the early parts of his adulthood. He's pretty mature in this. He dismisses her quietly. And that's a very big deal in the first century. He didn't make a public issue out of it. He wasn't trying to save his reputation or anything that might be said about him. He was trying instead to save her reputation, to save her life, because if she was found to be someone who had gotten pregnant before she had gotten married, she would be ostracized by society, and the only thing left for her to do probably would to be become a prostitute. So instead, he dismisses her with a private divorce. A private divorce doesn't sound like what divorce does today. A private divorce simply means that he got out of the contract. Again, they hadn't been married yet. Nothing had been, there had been no physical contact. He wanted to get out of the, the contract. He had, could legally not press the claim to be married to her. He could re be released from that, divorce her quietly. Unless you think this is just Joseph's way of covering up his own sin, he slept with her, got caught, and then he's going to say, not me. The reality is that if he wanted to press the idea, all they had to do was leave. I mean, Nazareth was not the only town in Israel. They could have gone somewhere else. It wasn't like they didn't have relatives or friends or somewhere where else where they could go and simply say they were already married. It wasn't like when you got married, you got a certificate, and they recorded it at the clerk of court. 
It's a different kind of society. As a matter of fact, it's actually what Mary does. If you heard the last part of the text, Mary, after she's pregnant, ends up going to Elizabeth in a different town, at a different place, closer to Jerusalem. And there she spends most of her pregnancy there so that people won't know that she's pregnant who live in and around where she grew up. So Joseph could simply have gone along with that, which eventually, apparently, he probably did. So they could have eloped, nobody would have known. He's not trying to cover anything up, he's just trying to say, gee whiz, I'm not the father. And that leads us to the biblical answer, because the biblical answer is Mary wasn't pregnant by Joseph, Joseph was not the father, and that Mary got pregnant because of the Holy Spirit. I think the fact that Joseph doesn't press these problems, these claims, uh, I think it's telling. To do any of these, he would have had to show and prove that he wasn't the father, and that the child was a bastard, and that Mary was a wanton woman, a gomer, a, a harlot. He saves the family. Now, albeit because he gets a dream where God speaks to him and says, this is okay, but he protects the family. And then comes this idea, both through the dream and through the angel's proclamation to Mary, that she'll become pregnant by the Holy Spirit. The concept is involved in the word conceived, or that you will bear a child. The concept of conceived is a complicated one in this text, and you've got to put your thinking caps on for a few minutes, because this is important. The word in the Greek means to seize and to take as prisoner. <laughs> Sounds real enjoyable, doesn't it? It actually is a metaphor. Uh, it's also used as a metaphor in which it means lust whose impulses a man indulges. That means to conceive a child. <laughs> uh, we're looking pretty good in this one, aren't we, men? Uh, to seize for oneself, to make a permanent prisoner. Now, there you go. Ladies, when you get pregnant, you're a permanent prisoner. Don't answer that one at all at this point. But there is another definition of the word that I think is important here too, because the other definition of the word to conceive means to take hold together, to assist, to conceive a child is to help. It means to succor. Succor means assistance and support in times of hardship and distress. That sounds a little bit more like what conceiving really is. Women who conceive sacrifice themselves, put their lives on the line in order to birth a child. They go through great distress and hardship physically, emotionally, hormonally, the whole experience in order to bring into the world a child. This is a pregnancy that the Bible says is in partnership with the Holy Spirit, and it is the Holy Spirit who is the one who is rendering assistance and support. The biblical claim is simply that this is a miracle. Rather than the result of sexual intercourse, it's something that has never happened before. We call it the immaculate conception. It comes from God. 
it's juxtaposed, if you look at, at Luke chapter 1, the events that happened before it are about Zechariah and Elizabeth. And it's really interesting to compare the two because Zechariah goes into the temple and he also hears from an angel. Now, the problem, is Zachari- the problem with Zechariah is that he and his wife are really old. And he can't figure out how she's going to get pregnant since they're both past the age where you typically could bear children. And she's been barren all of her life. So she's very old, he's very old, and he says, how is this going to happen? We're too old. On the other hand, Mary and Joseph are probably teenagers and they're too young. Also, the angelic visitation that promises to Zechariah that a child will be born is the child who will grow up to be John the Baptist. The angelic visit that, that comes to Mary is that the child that grows up will be Jesus. And that Mary and Elizabeth are cousins, meaning John the Baptist and Jesus were related to one another. They were cousins. By the way, contemplate that one the next time you object to having two people from the same family on staff at your church. Then go and look at the disciples and figure out how many sets of brothers you have there. I digress. I love those little drop-ins. They're fun. Okay, because I don't have to do anything with them. I just lay them out there, and you get to feel that. But the process, the process is so totally different between Mary, or rather, Zechariah and Mary. The angelic visitation to Zechariah comes to the man. In the angelic visitation for Jesus, it comes to the woman. Now, that's probably incredibly important because as a result of the angelic visit, the process is different. In the angelic, vi- in the angelic visit to Zechariah, he says, you, Zechariah, will conceive a child, meaning that the man has to be part of that, and he goes home and he, is, he knows his wife. He lays with his wife. It's a sexual orientation between a husband and wife that produces a child. The miracle is they're too old. But in Mary's case, the angelic visit doesn't come to Joseph because Joseph is not the father. This is not the result of a sexual union. It comes to Mary, and Mary is going to become pregnant, not by virtue of her relationship to Joseph, but by virtue of her commitment, her relationship, and her submission to God himself. So they are different even while they have similarities. But you see, none of that really answers the question, how did Mary actually get pregnant? (laughs) And I think that's a worthwhile question. It's actually Mary's question. If you look at verse 34, the one thing she asked the angel is, how will this be? Now, that's a perfectly valid question because you say, if I'm going to get pregnant and I'm a virgin, I don't understand the process. So what's the process? The angel, the good news in this is that the angel actually tells her what the process is. And you should be aware of what the process is. Here's the process. Because obviously, (laughs) it's not the normal process. Two concepts are used here for detailing the process of how Mary gets pregnant. First of all, the angel says, that the Holy Spirit will come upon you, that's first. And the second thing he says is that the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. 
Both of those words, both of those concepts, both of those terms are essential to understanding how or why or the process by which Mary got pregnant. The word, uh, the word that is, is translated will come upon you is a Greek word, hyperkamai, uh, just so that you know I went to school. Hyperkamai um, means to overtake, it means to descend upon, it means to operate in you. So if something comes upon you, it's not that it sticks to the outside of you, it's that it envelops you, it descends upon you, and it begins to operate not from the outside in, but from the inside out. The word overshadow, another Greek word, uh, episkolazo, uh, you wouldn't have any idea whether I pronounced that wrong or right, right, and that's why I love giving Greek, because I can just say it, and you think, boy, he's smart. I have no idea whether I got that right either. Uh, Piscazzo. See, I did don't say it wrong. To cast a shadow means to cast a shadow or shade, to envelop in a haze of brilliancy. It means to invest with powers that are outside of nature and the normal thing. The process of overshadowing Mary is a process that has happened before in the Bible in very important ways. Now, it wasn't to make somebody pregnant, but the idea of overshadowing, to envelop, to work from the inside out, to physically involve yourself significantly with another human being, I mean, God physically in involving himself with another human being so that there is brilliancy that is left on them. If you know your Bible, you know that in the Old Testament and in the book of Exodus, there was a situation when the nation of Israel was in the wilderness that Moses had a special tent constructed. It was called the tent of, anybody know what it is? It's the tent of, somebody said it, it's the tent of meeting. And Moses would go into the tent of meeting and sit down in the tent. And he would wait for God to arrive. And it's called the Shekinah, the glory of God, the brilliancy of the presence of God would literally descend. It was a physical thing. So much so that the rest of the Israelites would come out of their tents and stand at the door of their tent to watch the glory of God, the brilliancy of God, literally descend from the heavens and envelop the tent of meeting. And God would speak with Moses, and Moses would speak with God. And when it was finished, when it was finished, the glory, the Shekinah, would, would ascend back to heaven. And Moses would come out. Now, when Moses came out of the tent, his face would shine. They talk about glory being on his beard. In other words, there was a residual of the glory of God was left behind in the tent and it attached itself to Moses' face and to his beard. And when Moses would step out of the tent and he would address the nation of Israel and tell them what God would, had said to him 
in this encounter in the tent of meeting, they would notice the glory on his face. It was how they knew that God was speaking to them, not just Moses. And when he finished, well, actually, when he came out, he would have a veil across his face to hide the glory. But when he would speak to them, he would unveil his face and speak to them with the glory of God still clinging to his face. In other words, he spoke to them with an unveiled face. And that was how they knew that it came from God. Can you imagine standing there and watching that process? Unbelievable. Well, let me take you back to the angel's experience with Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. It says that the Holy Spirit will come upon you just like at the tent. The Shekinah, the glory of God, descends. You will be overshadowed. In other words, the glory of God, the brilliancy of God will envelop you. And that the child will be holy. In other words, something of God will be left behind in you. Jesus will be the voice, the word of God. Jesus, who will speak to us, will be conceived in Mary, born from Mary, and then as he grows, he will speak to us with an unveiled face, directly what God has said to him. Which is why, by the way, at the crucifixion, see how this all ties together? At the crucifixion, when Jesus died, something happened in the temple. There were earthquakes, there were all kinds of things that happened, but something happened in the temple. Anybody remember what happened in the temple itself? The veil, there was a curtain, a huge tapestry that was hung in the temple and it separated everybody from the Holy of Holies. Inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant was the rod of Aaron, there was some manna from the wilderness, the Ten Commandments, the tablets that God wrote with his own finger, they were in the Ark of the Covenant, and above the covenant was the presence of God. He physically dwelt in the temple, the cherubim and the seraphim above that, and that's where the presence of God dwelt. But they put the curtain there so that you couldn't see in there. Only the high priest, once a year, could go in to the temple, into the Holy of Holies, to offer sacrifice, to offer prayers, to offer uh, the sin of the, uh, of the nation so that it could be forgiven. And he was the only one that was allowed to go in. Otherwise, any other time, you couldn't even see in there because the veil, this huge tapestry, went in front. And when Jesus died for your sins and mine and gave us the opportunity to receive him into ourself and to have this relationship with Christ that is both spiritual and intellectual and emotional and in many ways physical and at our very soul and at the core of our being, the veil of the temple was rent in two. It was torn in half because God was now speaking to us with an unveiled face directly. 
Because now the Word of God, who is Jesus Christ himself, lives in us. This is the meaning of Christmas. This is the meaning of Christmas. Because that's how Mary became pregnant. The glory of God, the Shekinah, enveloped her. And what was left behind was a piece of God's own glory. His Son, Jesus, the Word of God. So, that's interesting, but what does that have to do for us in the middle of August as we're trying to celebrate Christmas? Well, first of all, I think it means that the Bible has a thread to it that we should understand and that it does indeed fit together and that the Exodus is tied to the birth of Christ, that the Passover is directly connected to Christmas. As a matter of fact, it means that the Exodus is, is connected to Christmas and that Christmas is connected to Good Friday and Good Friday is connected to Easter and Easter is connected to to Pentecost. These are not separate events. It is the unfolding of the revelation of God in one continuous thread that goes through the entirety of the Word. But it also means, and I think this may be helpful for us, it means that Christmas is tied to Pentecost. Because when Pentecost happened, the Holy Spirit came rushing wind, tongues of fire, the, the Holy Spirit came and it descended on the house, just like the Holy Spirit descended upon Mary. It came upon them, in the words of Luke 1. Tongues of fire present on each of them, the evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit, just like Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and that the fire of God dwelled upon her and within her. And then, on that Pentecost, that first Pentecost, the apostles stepped out on the balcony, and they began to preach the word of God to people. And so many people were convinced and convicted by that that 3,000 were saved that day and baptized. How could that be, these these? these struggling apostles who seemed so uncourageous that they ran at the cross and they denied him, how could they then be so bold as to stand up to proclaim the word of God and see thousands come to receive him? Only one way, at Pentecost they spoke with an unveiled face because the glory of God was on them and the Spirit of God had overshadowed them and was indeed within them. In the Church of God, we often talk about having two dynamic experiences with God that are important in our lives. One, of course, is salvation, because without salvation, we have no hope. But Jesus comes and forgives us of our sins. The second we talk about is a second work of grace is called sanctification or the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or if you will, being overshadowed 
by the Holy Spirit. We don't talk about these things because they're nice, neat little theological things, but because we are in this same thread from Exodus to Christmas to Easter and Good Friday to Pentecost, because when we receive the Holy Spirit into our lives, we are overshadowed by the Spirit. And when we speak, because the Spirit dwells within us, and when we testify and when we live, According to the constructs of the Spirit who dwells within us, we get to testify, to speak, to sing, to preach, to teach, to pray with an unveiled face. Because God does not dwell outside of us. God dwells within us. At the Exodus, God put himself inside the tent. At Christmas, he put his son inside Mary. At Pentecost, he put the Holy Spirit inside the believers. And at your sanctification, he puts that self-same spirit inside of you. In fullness. And in glory. I realize this is pretty theological and pretty heavy, but you all are pretty smart folks, so I'm assuming you went with me, but... Even if you haven't and you're struggling a little bit, let me assure you that you know all of this. And here is how I know. There is a very famous preacher from the 19th century. His name is Phillips Brooks. Phillips Brooks was one of the greatest preachers that the United States ever produced. Uh, you probably have never heard of him, but when you're a preaching geek like I am and all of this, I, I, I know the name very well. As a matter of fact, he was such a powering figure, he was called a titan of the pulpit in the, in the 19th century, and he wrote a book, or actually he gave a series of lectures, the most prestigious lectures on preaching that there has ever been. It's, it's called the, the Beeson Lectures at Yale Divinity School, and these are his lectures. He was a brilliant man. He, he's, he was one of the first to give these lectures, and because he did such a tremendous job in this lectureship, they became famous. That's how good Phillips Brooks was. As a matter of fact, at camp meeting this week at West Middlesex, one of the preachers actually quoted from, from his lectures on preaching. I was really impressed and gave Phillips Brooks' definition of preaching. And you could care less about any of that. <laughs> Except for the fact that you know who Phillips Brooks is. Phillips Brooks is not famous for his lectures, unless you're me. And he's not known as a titan of the pulpit, unless you're one of those preaching geeks. He's known because of what's in here. You sing his hymn. He wrote a hymn, and as far as I know, it's probably the only hymn he wrote. He wrote it for a Christmas program for his kids at his church in Philadelphia. And it's a song that you've sung every Christmas, all the time. It actually came off the fact that Phillips Brooks went to the Holy Land. And there he was so powerfully impressed one night when he was able to look down on the little town of Bethlehem. And it inspired him to write the song. But the fourth verse of that carol says everything that I've just said today. He just said it in one verse, but he's a lot better preacher than I am. Here's the fourth verse of a little town of Bethlehem. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. K 
cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. Oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord, Emmanuel. I pray that you have experienced what Mary experienced, but in your own unique way. I pray that you have experienced what Moses experienced, but again, in your own unique way. I pray that you have experienced what the disciples experienced on that first Pentecost, again, in your own unique way. And that is, I pray that you have experienced the power of the Spirit of God descending upon you and a little bit of the glory of God dwelling in you through the power and presence of His Holy Spirit. And that every once in a while you get a chance to speak on His behalf, to testify on His behalf with an unveiled face because the greatness and the glory and the Spirit of God dwell within you. If you haven't, I can't think of a better day than Christmas in August.